a logical question from that. And the question is, well, if Moxa seriously helped people recover from TB back in the day, well, let's just say in the 1930s in Japan, then if it was working then, before there were any TB drugs, then would it work today when the drugs aren't working anymore? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I recently attended a class, and it brought back to me the importance of basics. You know, basics, the fundamentals. That stuff that as teenagers, we all want to grow through as quickly as possible so we can get to the, quote, good stuff that comes later. But basics are not something to get and then move on from. They are the fundamentals that we can return to again and again and learn something new. They are reliable roots that when we are confused or don't know where to go next, they provide a touchstone. They're like a compass and reliable stars in the sky. I discovered over the weekend that it's easy for me to imagine that I understand when in fact I'm adding complexity to a clinical situation. And often it's a way to hide from myself that I don't actually grasp the basics of what's unfolding. That by getting more advanced in my thinking or trying to add one more thing to quote unquote cover the bases, I've actually slipped myself off the hook of a simple clean diagnosis that would allow for a simple treatment, which in turn would give me a clear and concise sense of the clinical information on my patient's condition, and more importantly, the effectiveness of my intervention. Sometimes I sit with a patient, and I'm not at all sure of my Chinese medicine diagnosis. I listen to them, and I want to give them a dose of, you're lovable as you are. I'd love to send them home with a concoction that would help them to show up with power in their marriage. I'd love to find a needle combination that allows them to slip into their own authority. I find the basics help me to return to noticing that there is a person with a set of symptoms and suffering. I'm not dealing with an organic machine that has come with some to-do list listed out under my main complaint. And isn't it curious anyway the way that we describe what people come to us with? Complaints. What if we and our patients found another way to talk about the disruption that showed up in their life that actually brought them into our practices? Maybe it's because it's springtime, and like so many, I find myself going through the accumulation of winter, deciding what to clean, what to clear, and what to simplify. Coming back to basics seems to offer some power and some clarity. A way to first be sure I have a firm footing so as to avoid conflating complexity with understanding. All right. Today, we're going into a discussion of moxibustion and its role in treating drug-resistant tuberculosis. If you thought moxa was only for adding heat to the body, then get ready for another perspective. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Today I've got Merlin Young with me, and Merlin has some stories for us about his work with, ready for this? Moxa in Africa. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear this conversation. Merlin, welcome to Geological. Oh, thank you for having me, Michael. A couple words that, to me, it's like, how do these go together? Well, actually, three words. Moxa, Africa, tuberculosis. I put those three together and I go, really? So first of all, Moxa was used in China historically for treating tuberculosis. 
that's in the historical literature. Um, if you want to go and dig it up, if you dig out Lorraine Wilcox's work, that's where we picked it up. So we're very grateful to Lorraine for that. And yeah, she's been on the show. I'll, I'll have to ping oh, her about okay. that. Yeah, she's been okay. on the show. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, t tell her she's got a she's got a plug here. But it was very aggressive treatment. It was kind of kill or cure. I think that would be the best way to describe it. So you do a massive, massive amount of moxa. You deliberately blister, and the claims in the literature are the patient will recover. That's the historical starting point. Actually, the oldest reference to it is from about 600 AD. Again, courtesy of Lorraine, she picked it up. Um, there was a there was a lost text, but it was referenced in later years from about I think something like 670 AD. So it goes back a long way. But the where I first heard about it actually was from Stephen Birch. Steve Birch, I think probably about 2001, 2002, I attended a workshop here in the UK, a moxa workshop, and he was teaching Japanese styles of, of the use of moxa. Right, which would be like the polar opposite of Burnham and Scarham. You've got it. You've got it. And one of the things that just a throwaway line that he, that he gave during the course of the, uh, of the workshop was... Because he was talking about how moxa can help boost immunity, or at least reinforce immunity. So he threw out this line, and, and it was used in the 1930s for treating tuberculosis in Japan. So it was just one of those things. Some things land in your brain, and they just, well, if, you, if you've got a brain like mine, they go out <laughs> the other ear, or they just melt away, or whatever. And this one just found its little home somewhere. It just made a little home in your brain. So Mox was used for treating tuberculosis. Now, at the time, I have to say, I didn't know that much about TB. So basically, some years later, probably four or five years later, I came across the work of Paul Farmer, who you may well know, he's, he's from your side of the pond, uh, Harvard-trained medical doctor anthropologist, an amazing man, um, founder of Partners in Health, who was doing stuff in Haiti particularly, and was doing a lot of work with HIV and was doing a lot of work with TB. He switched me on, not personally, this is through his writings, which are brilliant. Uh, he switched me on to two things, really. First, all the, the phenomenon of drug resistance in TB. And secondly, the appalling, appalling provision of health service that there is for the poor. And by the poor, we're talking about take your pick, a billion or two billion people in the world who share our world with us. It's a logical question from that. And the question is, well, if Moxa seriously helped people recover from TB back in the day, well, let's just say in the 1930s in Japan, using much what we describe as much more acceptable uh, methods of using Moxa than, than the, the old-style Chinese kill-or-cure method, then if it was working then, before there were any TB drugs, then... Would it work today when the drugs aren't working anymore? Well, it's it's driven everything ever since, basically, that question. And we're still trying to figure it out, but we have some good indicators that it can do now. So but so that's that's really where it started from. You know, I love how these kinds of things can happen where you hear something in one place, it doesn't go out of your ear, but you know, it's not necessarily in your consciousness. You hear something else, something else comes together and you go, huh, I wonder if this could help that. It seems like a really innocent question, right? But but it, it sounds like it's taken you a long way. I'll tell you an, another connection. One of the key people in this is a, a bit of a sort of, almost like a mythical figure, and he's not a mythical figure, a Japanese doctor 
called Dr. Shimataro Hara, or the Hara is their family name. So actually you, you reverse it in Japan, so it's Dr. Hara Shimataro. And Dr. Hara wrote about the use of moxa. He was fascinated by moxa, and he treated tuberculosis with it. So we've modeled ourselves off his protocol. And I'm going to say this, this is going to sound rather grandiose, and I'm not coming on here to sound grandiose, but he, up until uh, the research, the proper scientific research that we've done in Uganda, up until that point in time, his was the only scientific research, certainly that we've ever found, that has looked at the use of what would describe a small cone direct moxa for the use of on tuberculosis. His research was on animals uh, back in 1929. Very compelling research, a very simple but a very, very elegant model of research. He, he infected a load of animals and then uh, varied different treatments, different kind of dosages and, and protocols of treatments. And from that, he kind of like drew some conclusions, which he applied to human patients. The reason why I bring him into this story is for two reasons. One is I have a feeling he's been pulling our strings all along. He died in the 80s. He was 108 years old when he died. Oh, my goodness. He was actually officially, for the last three months of his life, he was the oldest male in Japan. He advocated the use of moxa at stomach 36 on a daily basis for longevity. He plainly walked his talk and, and proved it by, by him. And he was actually a practicing physician in his after he'd turned 100. So he's a remarkable man really remarkable. And I really do feel like he's been pulling our strings a lot through this. And when you say about, you know, coincidence and things, it's kind of like, yeah, whenever anything coincidental happens, we have a little sort of private joke. Aha, Doc, Doc Hara's at it again. Uh-huh, <laughs> and uh-huh. so in a sense, I feel that we're, it's our job to finish his job, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, and you pay attention to those little moments of synchronicity that let you go, uh-huh, exactly. we're on the right path. Exactly, exactly. Do you have some of this research? Is this something you could share with us, put it up on the show notes page or something oh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I could. We've got two chunks of research, If I, if I, without getting too technical. I have to explain a little bit about TB. TB is out of control in large parts of the world. They say it's 1.6 million. It's probably two or possibly even more in reality. But let's call it 2 million people die each year of TB. The drug resistance component is getting bigger and bigger. When it's in concert with HIV, it's extremely dangerous, which is why the epidemic in Africa, the regional epidemic in Africa, has got has got a really, really acute and has been very, very hard to bring under control. And it's still not under control. And the drug-resistant component is not under control at all. I'll just go back to moxa just for a sec, because there's another reason why moxa is so compelling for use in, in this particular region of sub-Sahara is because of the high levels of HIV. Now, if you're using acupuncture, and there's no reason why you shouldn't use acupuncture, except that I don't think for a second that acupuncture stokes immunity the way moxa does. And I have no evidence at all it helps with TB, apart from possibly helping with a little bit of the symptoms. But there's no scientific evidence beyond that, as far as we've found anyway. The thing about using needles in sub-Saharan Africa is you have to be incredibly careful. Because particularly if it works, because if it works, people are compelled to, to actually repeat using it. And if you don't set up a proper, really, really, really rigorous infrastructure to support the treatment, people will inevitably reuse needles with predictable consequences. Now, the beauty of moxa is that there is no risk of cross infections. So it has an extra little something special 
for for the sub-Sahara or for anywhere where there's HIV or for anywhere in actual fact where there's crap immunity and wherever there's poor people is to be honest there's pretty crap immunity unfortunately so going back to your research we've got two pieces of research if anybody wants to check out the website they'll find links from from it um that's www.moxafrica.org but two the first is published in a peer-reviewed journal in the european journal of integrative medicine which sounds very grand and it was a randomized control study comparing two groups of 90 patients all had got were newly infected with pulmonary tb so tb of the lungs one of whom was given a course of drugs the standard drugs plus moxa and the other the standard drugs without the moxa and we compared the results of the two the only moxa therapy we asked of the patients was to self administer moxa on themselves every day at stomach 36 uh, so it's very low dosage, but we we chose to do that because with the preliminary work we'd done, we'd done some pilot studies, we figured that that would be enough to see significant changes between the two groups. We were fairly confident, but just a little bit nervous that we might have under-egged it. But the beauty then is people are doing it on themselves. They're more likely to do it. You know, there's no point having 90 patients, only half of them do it, which is what you'd maybe do if you had somebody had to do the treatment for them. We underdose the treatment. And we got results. We plainly got some improved recoveries. More people recovered, but specifically what was noticeable was they recovered faster. Now, if they recover faster, then their their infectiousness, their period of infection is potentially shorter. So we've got shorter periods of infection. We've got better recoveries, although that wasn't statistically significant in inverted commas, but there was a clear difference between the groups. We also had improved hemoglobin counts and we also had improved CD4 counts, which is the, the marker for HIV. We also had, strangely, uh, better adherence to the drugs, which was not what we were looking for, but we were trying to sweep as much as we could. So that was our first one. Now, basically, so we, we share it with key people, bearing in mind that the world is in big trouble with drug-resistant TB. We were kind of hopeful that somebody would pick this up in the field of TB research and would go, okay, this is pretty weird and left field. In fact, it's very weird by our stuff, but mm-hmm. we need to check this but out. Something's happening. Right? Yeah, we need to check it out. Unfortunately, for reasons which you've you got to make your own mind up about, there's been a reluctance to engage it, even amongst African researchers where you'd expect maybe there would be more maybe a bit more open-minded, but the North Koreans picked it up, bizarrely. The North Koreans? The North wait a minute, Koreans. wait a minute. You guys are going to North Korea and doing this? Yeah, we've been to North Korea. So one of our team, a guy called Luke Burke, he had some potential contacts in North Korea, explored it with the North Korean Ministry of Health. Now, North Korea has a serious problem with MDR-TB, with the drug-resistant, a really serious problem. And they don't get the sort of support from the global authorities that other countries in the world get because they're basically, um, you know, being... North Korea. Yeah, you know, just make, make it hurt, make it hurt, make it hurt. So he went there, and the first two trips, he went there and and he trained top people top people and they took to it dead easily and so they said well we'll do a study of our own so they did a study of our own of their own and this time they only tested it on drug resistant cases and they used a bigger dosage and they did it in in tb sanatoria so basically they had full control over it and they have got some very very exciting results 
So in their case, yes, they got better recoveries, not just better, significantly better recoveries, which would suggest that the current the current extrapolating their data to world statistics. I'm 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 throwing numbers and I apologize, but the global average for successful treatment of drug resistant MDRTB, which is the, the lower level of drug resistance, is just fifty five percent. Actually, I think it might be fifty four, but it's only just over half. Now we reckon that if you apply the North Korean data, what they got with their MOXA cases, as opposed to just their drug cases, that could improve to seventy two percent. Now that's huge. That is huge. That's a giant jump. Yeah. It's a it's a potential game changer and it's cheap. And you can self-administer. Well, they wouldn't, not with a higher dose. So we're talking about okay. a slightly different league. But good news, there's, there's problem. Good news, problem. So the problem is, this is North Korean data and nobody wants to believe it. Our job now is to get it retested, the same protocol, under similar, we're never going to get exactly the same circumstance, but similar circumstances, retest it and see whether we get the same results. And we need to do it in an environment where the results will be able to be submitted to a peer review journal and then published in a peer review journal, hopefully. And then potentially we've got the game changer because then I don't think, I think it's impossible then for people to basically turn away and pretend it's not there. When you say a higher dose, mm. what are we looking at here? Well, we're, we're modeling it off our friend, Dr. Hara, what he did on his patients. And he used stomach 36 which, as I said, the, the patients can self-administer. But he also used eight points on the lower back. We call them the Dr. Hara points, or we call them the loin points sometimes. I believe the loin is somewhere around the lower back. I'm not too sure. But they're pretty much in the sacral area. And they're not, strictly speaking, meridian points. Although, generally speaking, when you lay them out, they're very easy to to mark out on the average body. So you don't have to have really advanced anatomical knowledge, nor do you need to know points point numbers point names or anything like that you basically map out a triangle on the lower back and you within the triangle it's very easy to mark these eight points out it takes a few minutes when you when you know what you're doing it takes literally about two or three minutes to start with it's a bit challenging but once you've got it you've got it and so you use eight points and you you build up the dosage using very these are rice rice grain cones of moxa they're very small we actually encourage we all say half rice grain dried rice to try and stress that this has to be you know minute as small as you can make them and you burn them so the patient feels feels the heat and then you snuff them out so because they're on the lower back obviously you need somebody else to do it so that is a challenge tb patients they're often living in in very very poor circumstances and they may be living on their own or they may be, sometimes they may be alcoholic or whatever, you know, there's lots of circumstances where this is difficult for them to manage. But when you're talking about MDRTB, you should be treating them with with what they call second line drugs. It's like a two year treatment. It's a long treatment, heavy, toxic treatment. Now, under those circumstances, you should be treating them in the community, but they should be very well managed by health workers or in hospital. In your country or my country, they both be treated in hospital. And under those circumstances, it's very easy to have somebody to treat them. In actual fact, if it's inpatient, you could get patient treating patient. It's got so many lovely things about it. It's very empowering. It's self-empowering if you're, if you're treating yourself. It's very self-empowering. TB patients are often disempowered to start with 
because because of their circumstances, then they have everything taken away from them by an illness. They may already be HIV positive as well. So they're on the edge already. You're giving them some power over their health back. And under similar circumstances, if, if you've got a patient treating a patient, it's giving a patient extra power. And all of a sudden, the chemistry is changing. You know, they're on the up rather than the isolation. They can't they can't see their relatives. You're all this stuff for two years. It's It's dreadful, really dreadful. You know, this piece about patient treating patient, and like you say, that sense of empowerment, not just that I might get better, but I, also that I can help somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really would change your mindset. I, I, I think it would. I mean, this is a long way away from most of the acupuncture that we do, which may be raising some of your listeners' eyebrows now because they're thinking, hang on a sec, you know, we, we, we spent three, four years or whatever training in this stuff, and this guy's basically... But this is moxa, and moxa has always been, the history tells me, moxa has always been, you could call it the people's medicine. I'm embarrassed to say this, but when I studied in acupuncture school and they taught us gua sha, I didn't pay attention. I mean, I basically didn't pay attention because I thought, oh, it's folk medicine, I'm here to be an acupuncturist, you know, blah, blah, blah. I missed out on a bunch of good years of using gua sha until I actually talked to some folks on the podcast. And they got me using it. And and the stuff that I see happening with something as simple as gua sha is game changing. And it's folk medicine. And I can teach my patients to do it so they don't have to come see me, which I think is terrific. Yeah, exactly. And there is a tradition in Japan of practitioners. They teach their their patients to self-administer moxa and send them home. Do the moxa every day on these points, on this point. On Don't come point. see me. Just yeah. take care of it yourself. There's, Heck yeah. There's a, lo- there's a, a long-standing tradition, but I'll go, I'll go further. I'll be a little bit controversial for you. If you go back and look at the history of Chinese medicine, moxa began acupuncture in the sense that the earliest known texts which describe channels as we would understand them were moxa texts. They weren't acupuncture texts. They were moxa texts. And they predate the use of moxa for regulating chi as we understand it today there may have been some needles used prior to that possibly although there's no complete evidence for it but at around about the same time there was needles used but they were probably used for lancing boils but when it comes to the earliest two texts that describe channels they describe only 11 channels and they didn't describe the circuit of channels but they plainly describe channels and the those texts were literally copy and copied and pasted into the Ling Shu, one of the Neijing texts, to chapter chapter ten of the Ling Shu is the first is the first chapter in the Neijing text which describes the circulation of channels and each of the twelve meridians in detail, where they start, where they finish. The composition and the structure of that chapter is, I am absolutely convinced, copied from these Moxa texts. Now the Moxa texts were lost and they were found archaeologically they were found in a tomb that was excavated in 1973 and what that suggests to me is that you use the phrase folk medicine moxa was a folk medicine and then these guys come along with the needles needle was high-tech medicine it wasn't folk medicine if you had a needle a a fine needle you'd got something of intrinsic value and what what early acupuncturists did is I'm going to be slightly impolite to them, but they basically made it a very sophisticated medicine that basically was for the benefit of the elite of China. It wasn't for the benefit of everybody. It was impossible because because they had made it very sophisticated 
And you could be a moxa practitioner and be illiterate, but you couldn't be an acupuncturist and be illiterate. So I strongly suspect that these moxa texts were literally buried as a result. It was better that basically these got lost because otherwise people would keep looking at these these illiterate guys wandering around the countryside burning people and go, well, hang on a sec, haven't they got something as well? So I do think we've had a tension, an early tension between acupuncture and moxa. The proof of it is in the Nanjing. So you've got the two Nanjing texts, the, the, the um, Suwan and the Lingshu, and then you have the Nanjing, which is regarded by many as the classic of five-phase acupuncture. They've all got 81 chapters. The Nanjing texts do refer to moxa, not very often, but they do refer to moxa here and there, but they're basically needling texts. The Nanjing text does not mention moxa once in 81 chapters. And I think that's the smoking gun that tells us that the early acupuncturists didn't really want to know about moxa because it was too simple. But the problem is, for some things, it's spectacularly effective. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So you're saying that acupuncture was the big pharma of ancient China? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in the same way as medicine today, and this is, comes down to a theme behind our work with Mox Africa, medicine today is unsustainable. And if we divide our world into the haves and have-nots, it's currently only the haves that can afford any decent amount of medicine. If I go back to my hero, Paul Farmer, the Harvard medical anthropologist, he is determined and his colleagues are determined that the poor should benefit from the might of modern medicine. Why? Because they're the ones who suffer the most from ill health. It's kind of like we have a topsy-turvy world and TB symbolizes this. If I was to contract MDR-TB living in this country, I would get decent care for it. It would be tough, but I've got a very, very good chance of being cured by it. If I'm contracted where the TB exists in bulk, and there's very little TB in your country, and there's a little bit more in mine, but there's still, comparatively speaking, very little in, in the, here in the UK. But if you contract TB where the TB exists in, in droves, there is no, I was going to swear there, but there's no treatment for it. So basically... TB treatment isn't actually that expensive, but it typifies what you've got in the modern world. You've got the might of modern medicine is increasingly expensive and is only available to those who can afford it, which includes most of the people in your country and mine, not all. 
Well, actually, in my country, it is definitely stratified as well. We don't have a national health care system. Uh, we have the best medicine money can buy, which means you need money to buy it. It's not like most uh, developed countries where there's some kind of national system that it's at least going to catch a bunch of people you know, at a certain level. We don't, we don't really have that here. I'm going to throw another little brick into the pond of controversy. And I'm going to say, who, where, anywhere is anybody in medical research looking at the provision of affordable treatment, appropriate treatment for the people in this planet who most need it, i.e. the poor? Now, Paul Farmer's position is we have to provide the sort of care that is, that is available to the, the wealthier in your country or my country, it is our human obligation to provide that level of care to those who need it, however poor they may be. Now, that's a wonderful aspiration, but frankly, it's only going to happen in small numbers. So in the meantime, why aren't we looking at trying to find affordable, appropriate therapy that can be used to address some of the big, big issues that affect the world's poor today in terms of their health. And the problem is nobody's doing this because there's no money in it. Well, it sounds like you're doing it. What we're doing is uh, is a tiny pebble of what's needed, believe me. But we have a plan behind it, which is to try and wake our own profession up to this. I think we probably have a lot to offer in terms of affordable medicine and appropriate medicine, but we're not doing very well at exploring that because we're fighting our own little corner in our own world to make a living. Let's take that brick and turn it into a boulder. Let me ask you this, because while you say you've got a pebble, you're doing something, and more than most of us, and you've got some background, and you've got some insight, and you have some experience. And here's the other thing, and, and we all know this, and everyone out there listening knows this, that the research, of course, is done by the companies that stand to profit from the research. So do some research on using MOXA to treat drug-resistant TB. I mean, why would they even want to do that? I mean, that would go counter to what's going to keep them in business. So in some ways, they can't do it. It has to fall to people that are outside of that system. In your case, you're picking that up. What else could we do as acupuncturists or moxibustionists or you know, the, whatever the medicine is that we practice? How could others pick up and learn from this and do their own research or find their own ballywhack that they want to work in or help support you? Hang on to the help support me. <laughs> Don't let me not make some suggestions in that front. But let me go back. First of all, you addressed the issue of there's nothing in it here for the drug companies. I can argue, although a drug company hasn't picked us up on it yet, but I can argue we're no threat to the drug company because what we're advocating is improving the results of the drugs themselves. So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to help the patient recover. If only 55% of your patients are recovering and you could make it 72%, wouldn't you want your drug to be used alongside that treatment? Because actually your drug's going to get used more, isn't it? You know, basically if, if your patients recover faster, I could argue against this as well, by the way, but basically when we are no threat to the drug companies, the pattern of medical research certainly as I understand it, is first of all, you've got some bright bright guys in the university come up with an idea. And so then they test it and they think, oh, we might have something here. Then they get funded by the drug companies. So the st it starts at the universities. 
it starts with with researchers who are quite possibly very idealistic people. Why shouldn't this research get done under those circumstances, even if it was only limited? If you're developing a, a new drug, you have to do an enormous amount of research. You've got to build up uh, safety profiles. Then you do very small studies, phase one, phase two, phase, and then you go to phase three, which are big studies, very, very expensive. Now, we don't have to go through phase one because we've got the safety data. This this stuff's been used for <laughs> for centuries, you know. So to get the research going is much easier, much easier than it would be if you're starting from scratch with a new drug. And I'm still hopeful that some professor somewhere is going to pick up our work and go, I'll, I'll put a couple of PhD students on this. Why not? And then you get some more data because what we need to do is build up more data. And reliable data and data that people will look at and say, well, this is realistic. Oh, North Korea, blah, blah, blah. You know, who's going to believe that? And, yeah. and, you know, there's a saying, you know, one swallow does not make a summer. Well, one paper does not make it, does not change medicine. And, you you know, you end up with the, the only thing that really changes it is, generally speaking, is meta-analyses where they're looking at several studies or maybe dozens of studies. They're looking at tens of thousands of, of patients and they analyze all of the studies and they make they, and they draw conclusions so we're a million miles away from that but where you've got a problem which is such an acute problem and i'll, I'll try and spread this wider in a minute where you've got a, a problem like tb where basically what the hell are you going to do how are you going to address this problem just put it in perspective for a second the uk government here david cameron who's not the most discredited prime minister um, possibly less discredited than the than the current one but before that was the most discredited prime minister of modern times. But he commissioned some economists to make some predictions about what are called antimicrobial resistant disease, so that's drug resistant disease. What's it going to do to the world's economy? And he commissioned a guy, Jim O'Neill, his name is, who who he he coined the phrase BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa as being these these growth economies a decade or two ago. He's a world-renowned economist. So he said figure out, use the WHO data on, on, on these diseases and figure out what's it going to cost the global economy. And he, So they came out with some numbers. But Jim O'Neill did something that nobody, it strikes me, in, in Geneva, the WHO seems to be inclined to do is what is going to happen? How many people are going to die of this drug-resistant disease? So he, as an economist, not an epidemiologist, he used epidemiological logic and looked ahead. And he said, by 2050, so this was in 2015, so 35 years. In the following 35 years, he anticipates 75 million people will die of drug-resistant TB. Now, that's about the same as the total amount of people who died in the Second World War, soldiers and civilians. And a, 10, a good 10 to 15% of them will be children. You know, it's just, this is a nightmare. And there is no answer to it. So when you have no answer, then you start to think a little bit outside the box. So I think we've got, you know, we should have up our sleeve a, a little bit of a sort of trump card here. Use that word carefully, knowing who I'm talking to. But but basically, what the hell else are you going to do? Have a look at it, for Christ's sake. You know, it's cheap. It's easy. But now go back to you, the point you made about about what else could we be looking at? Well, look at the big the big health issues of our time. Cardiovascular disease, cancer, hypertension, diabetes. I am quite convinced that use, we could use Moxa. I mean, I've seen it with patients. Where patients have chemotherapy 
for cancer. The chemotherapy crashes their immune system. That's its, that's its job, basically, because it's trying to crash cells that replicate fast. Or it's trying to hit them as hard as possible. And one of the things it does, unfortunately, as well as, as hitting cancer cells, is it, it hits white blood cells. If your white blood cells crash too much, they have to stop the cancer treatment. In worst cases, they crash too much, you get an infection, and unfortunately you die of an infection. You say you need a blood transfusion or whatever. The collateral risk of the chemotherapy is that they have to stop the therapy and also possibly stop it completely, or possibly it could it could end up in a with, with losing the patient. Now, MOXA can help balance that by boosting the white blood cell count. And it would be easy, easy to test that because the MOXA could be done by the patient at home. MOXA patients, when they're going through chemotherapy, are getting regular blood counts uh, because it's it's done before each cycle of the chemotherapy. So it would be it would be really comparatively easy for us as a group of professionals, as a group of practitioners around the world, whenever we're treating a patient going through chemotherapy, to basically monitor the data monitor what we do if we make interventions we have this beautiful thing called the internet the guys back in china 2000 years ago didn't have anything like that and they were able to develop acupuncture so we've got the internet we can do it so easily so we could easily develop some data which would help we, it doesn't have to be a, a big rigorous study it would be enough to wake people up to to what it could do diabetes you can test um, blood sugar levels instantly after a, after a treatment easily so why aren't we doing that so we could develop we could develop simple whether with moxa or with acupuncture we could develop simple protocols that could be used to help what is a worldwide pandemic of diabetes that is on the rise seriously on the rise have you seen moxa be effective in in changing blood sugar levels, especially in people that have no interest in changing their diet or anything? Uh, like I'm that? I'm going to be cautious when, when I answer that. What I, what I'll say is I know that there are moxa protocols for diabetes in the, in the Japanese moxa literature. So in the in the 20th century moxa literature, there is there is. Now, have I got personal experience of that? No, actually, my my experience with treating diabetic patients is I, I'm using acupuncture more than moxa because I figure actually that acupuncture is probably lower risk for the patient, um, particularly on the limbs because you don't want a patient. I'm I'm cautious about using moxa on a diabetic patient because you know they potentially could, yeah, they could potentially give themselves an infection and and then nobody's going to come looking for me to to for anything but problems, you know, but um, but. It, it's not infrequent that I've seen the blood sugar levels really reduce after acupuncture treatments. I'm not the best acupuncturist in the world. I'm sure there are many, many, many better ones. And so basically, where is our body of knowledge on this? Shouldn't we be looking at it? It would be easy to research, I think. So I think as a profession, we're really, really missing a trick. We're under a little bit of attack here in, in this country, here in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US, but in, in some countries in Europe, from what you might describe as sort of more fundamentalist biomedicine. They don't like us. For one reason or other, they don't like us. And one of the things they say is, you know, look, when uh, we've got a guy here, he's, he's quite a famous professor at University of College of London. And one of the things he says, it's all very well, you know, if you, you know, for the healthy and wealthy or whatever to have their, their lovely acupuncture and things. But the day I get cholera, the day, and this is quote unquote, the day I get cholera or the day I get TB, I'm not going to go and see an acupuncturist. Now, hang on a sec. 
we have the potential to actually throw that one, that, that brick right back at him and say, well, actually, you might be doing yourself quite a good job if you do. I don't know anything about cholera, but I, I'm pretty sure. You know something about TB. Well, actually, you might not want to see an acupuncturist. You might want to see a moxibustionist. Uh, yeah, you might well do. Yes, <laughs> but, but but going just going back to cholera. Interestingly, I I think I'm right in saying this. That Tinyao So, who founded the the acupuncture school in Boston, um, I'm trying to think what it's called right this second. New England yeah, School of Acupuncture. That's it. That's right. You know, he founded that. I'm pretty sure that. He got interested in acupuncture or acumoxa originally because he saw it being used for treating cholera, I think, in Hong Kong. And I think it might have been in the 1930s or 40s. So maybe even with cholera, there's something that we have. I, I, I don't want to particularly go too near cholera. I'm putting myself in muscle, enough at risk with TB. But we're talking about acute illness, primary care that we may be able to to, to contribute. And it, we may be able to do it on a cheap level, and we may be able to do it on an appropriately low-tech level. I'd like to hear how you think about TB from a Chinese medicine point of view. Is it a hot disease? Is it a cold disease? How do you see it? And then how do you see the, the moxa working as a treatment for that? I don't see it as in terms of Chinese medicine, I'll be quite honest with you. Um, what it is, it's a bacterial infection. It's a nasty one. It's very clever. It works very slowly, so it tricks the immune system. So I really, really do see it biomedically. I know we've had some people say you can't treat, you can't use moxa on a disease like because you're getting you're getting a lot of hot sweats and things like that. Well, okay, so you can't, but I can, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but we've got some results. So you know, so I have to throw some of the the some of the the traditional theory, well, I'm not going to throw it away, but I'm putting it aside because we're thinking very biomedically with this. We're thinking what we're trying to do is we're trying to basically boost the ho- what we'd call the host immunity. Zheng qi. I mean, we were, in Chinese medicine, we call it the zheng qi, right? You're strong, antipathogenic, qi that knows what to do. I would even yeah. say, you, you could even say the wei qi as well because the wei qi is the, the aggressive guys. And the way qi gets mobilized. So it's a bit like I can, I have made, it's, it's a bit tentative, but I have made a kind of like a correlation between the way qi and the white blood cells, you know, the natural killer cells. The way qi is, I think it's, I can't remember exactly what the phrases are. The, it's nimble and aggressive or something like that. Well, natural killer cells, what are they? Well, they're definitely aggressive, aren't they? Because it's in the name, you know. So this, this model of, of defense, an army of defense, is there in the traditional Chinese literature. And it's there, if you, if you read Paul Unschuld uh, in some of his stuff, he, he, he discusses this a bit. And it's there in, in, in the way we interpret host immunity today. The immune system is fantastically complicated. I don't pretend to understand it, but I do understand some of the basics of it. What we're trying to do is we're trying to do a broad boosting of the human immune system to, to counteract the, the, the tuberculosis with the same, it would be same with the chemotherapy. We're trying to lift specific immune cells, particularly the lymphocytes in the case of cancer, cancer patients, but also actually, no, that's not true. And the same in the case of, of TB patients. So I'm, I do see it very, very unapologetically. I see it biomedically TB as a disease. Again, we have to go back to Lorraine, Lorraine Wilcox for it. She uncovered several names for it. 
one of which was very interesting one of which was was I, I couldn't tell you what it is in Chinese but was passing from door to door disease isn't that beautiful it was an infectious disease they recognized it there an infectious, there's disease. An infectious disease yeah. right or there was another one called which is dreadful it's called cadaverous infection in fixation cadaverous in fixation now if you've seen somebody with advanced tb they become cadaverous i've seen it i know what that means that makes sense to me or it could just be a, a, a lung taxation that would be another another name so there are various names for it 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 materializes differently hippocrates called it physis which it means wasting we in in the english speaking world we used to call it consumption it consumes you. It consumes you. That's another word for cadaverous, cadaverous infixation, I guess. So, so it's just a horrible disease, basically, that we should have knocked into into the gutter, and we haven't. We've failed. It's 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 modern medicine's biggest failure. That's another thing. Its biggest failure. We've made it stronger in some ways with the yeah, drug resistance. Yeah, and it's an infectious disease. It's mankind's literally. You can you can go back right back to the Egyptians. You can find records of of tuberculosis, right back to ancient yeah, tuberculosis and cockroaches. It all goes with civilization. Yeah, and we identified the 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 disease in 1882, and the vaccine appeared in 1921. It's not a very good vaccine. If it was a good vaccine, there'd be no TB on the world. Now, what happened with smallpox? You know, that's a good vaccine. You know, where's the smallpox? There are estimated to be, and you 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 can check this out. Any listening can check this out. I'm not making this up. There are estimated to be 1.7 billion people living today on this planet who are infected with tuberculosis. Now, that's not a good well, vaccine. That's an astonishing number. Yeah, that's, most of them, the vast majority of them, have got latent disease. It's in, their infection. They've, they've been infected, but the disease hasn't broken out into an active state. And the disease will wait until it wants to. And when it senses the opportunity, then bingo, it comes out. But one point, that's roughly one in four of us are infected with, with tuberculosis. The first drugs appeared in the late 1940s, just after the war. We should have, we should have knocked this disease into the gutter. We may, we may not have eradicated it because it is a sneaky, it really is. A, I, have, I have a guarded admiration for it, I've got to say, but... I don't think there's a single country in the world that has actually successfully eradicated tuberculosis yet. Not one, human tuberculosis. But we should have it down to the sort of levels that, that exist in our country, in our two countries. We should have that worldwide. And we let it off the hook when lung cancer appeared, all the, all the lung specialists. And here we go. Why? Because there's no money in it. So all the, all the lung researchers go into looking for, the, for what, what can we do for, for lung cancer? There's money here. I'm not saying that all researchers are money orientated, but but certainly the, the companies that come in behind them with the drugs are fixated on profit. And it's an infectious disease. We've been very successful with most infectious diseases, but not, yeah, but not, not with one. tuberculosis. It's the elephant in the room. I say this, TB is the first, is the, elef the big elephant in the room of modern medicine. It's the one that basically got away. It's sleeping in the corner, but behind it, there's a smaller elephant which is what we call multi-drug resistant TB. And behind that, there's an even smaller elephant, but which is more dangerous still, which is what they call extensively drug resistant TB. There are something like 12 groups of drugs that will have some effect on the TB bacteria. 12 groups of drugs. They, they range in toxicity and they range in strengths. There is some strains of TB which are resistant to all of those groups. 
Now, we've worked really, really hard to do that without even trying. We've managed to do what would be pretty difficult to do, we've managed to do in a couple of generations. That's how bad it is. This bug mutates when it's put under pressure. It naturally does it. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Tell us a little more about what you're doing in Africa and, and what you're noticing there. And how it's making a difference. I'm going to calm down now because I've got myself all excited about tuberculosis. <laughs> we're jumping into a fine yeah, lather. So I've got, but I've got to calm down because what we're doing in Africa is m much more modest than we would have hoped by now. So basically what we've attempted to do is we've attempted to kind of transplant a, a traditional treatment from one culture in East Asia, specifically Japan, where it's been used for centuries to another culture which has never heard of it which we have no idea how it's going to and we're talking if, if we're talking about pan-african we're talking about a range of culture as well but a culture that's never heard of a treatment like this and we're saying here it is try it and make of it what you will our ethos basically is we we're not trying to come in like a bunch of new neo-colonials we're saying look we found this thing we're europeans we found this in east asia why don't you try it? Because I think it might help under the circumstances that you have now currently in the amongst, certainly amongst the poorer parts of your communities. This treatment, we think, could make a difference. How do you work with the local cultures, which are all different, with the power structures, infrastructure? We went in, I think, you, not beneath the radar, but very, very near beneath the radar in Uganda, first of all. And we got a clinic in downtown Kampala, which has got a, a TB clinic, to to do a pilot study with us. So we basically supplied the moxa. We trained that we trained health workers. So on a very on a very sort of low level way, we they started testing out on their patients, and then they they give us feedback. And the feedback we got was, this seems to be working. We've got some patients here. We expected to die, and they haven't died. But we had no scientific data behind it. So, but but it, and also the most important thing that we learned was we've tested out with HIV co-infections, which we were very nervous about because our friend Dr. Hara 
the, the late Dr. Hare, he didn't have any HIV to contend with, with his TB patients. So we were, we were nervous about HIV. But when they were saying, well, our HIV patients seem to be, seem to be doing really well as well. Now, they were naturally effusive, over-enthusiastic. We've got to be cautious. We then struck lucky in South Africa. Now, South Africa has got higher levels of HIV co-infection and also has much worse levels of drug resistance. It's the sort of root of the TB epidemic in the, in the African region. It's worse in Southern Africa than anywhere else. So we did two pilots, similar pilot studies in South Africa, one in a, in a township in Cape Town and with a, a sort of post-apartheid organization, very, very interesting organization, and another with the help of a, of a um, hospice in a small town about 125 miles north of Cape Town in the, in the wine growing area. We got similar results from both of them. The health workers were diff- very different. The communities they're working in were, were very different, but they both got positive results. So we thought, wow, we're onto something. The health workers in the, in the little town had less confidence in themselves. And so we didn't pursue it with them. We pursued it with them with, with the, with the health workers in the township. In It's a place called Nianga. It's a township in Nianga in Cape Town. What we didn't know when we started there was that Nianga was already the murder capital of South Africa. So you can imagine if it's a murder capital of South Africa, it's got, it's, there's a lot of murder because there's a lot of murder in South Africa. And it got worse and worse and worse in the period that we were we were visiting, going in and coming out, to the extent that at the end, the project there was called SACLA. They couldn't guarantee our safety anymore. Um, they'd had shooting on the on the project itself. The community was in violent meltdown, unfortunately. So we had to pull out, but we tried to stay in touch and we tried to say, you know, look, just keep it going, keep it going. We'll keep, we'll, we can get the moxer into South Africa. All you got to do is pick it up from somewhere else. If we can't get it to you, we'll get it to you, you know. And we've lost touch with them. I think that Sackler itself has actually had some organizational problems, but I can't say that hand on heart because I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the, the last contact we had was saying they'd got problems. So the, all, these, all these things, they have problems. Back in, in Kampala, we've, I don't know how many patients have had the benefit of this. We've had feedback from patients saying, this should be in the, should be in the countryside. We should be doing this in the countryside. We say, yeah, we'd love to, you know, but we've not been able to take it to the next level because we haven't got the resource to do it. So we're just, we're really fundamentally, we have to, I have to use that word very, very strategically, fundamentally focused on getting research data because without the research data, we could do lots of small projects and we could have some fun doing it probably as well. We could get acupuncturists involved and, you know, basically you could say, well, if you can provide your own flights, you know, see whether you can help us out. And you can, you can travel down into Western Uganda and you can work in a, in a, in a villages and stuff like that. But are we ever going to make it real in the way that we imagine it could be real when you've got 75 million lives at stake? We've got to play the game, the biomedical game, which is find the data. If the data is seriously compelling, if we're, if we're, if what we're saying is true, the data will reveal itself. And so basically, if we can get that and we can get that to to interest the right people, this treatment will get used widely by people all over the world. That would be in a Yeah, because you've got the scientific yeah, data to back yeah. it up. I'm wondering if 
I mean, increasingly here in the United States, I don't know about other parts of the world, but increasingly here in the United States, there are doctoral programs and people have to do research or a capstone or, you know, something or other. I'm wondering if this might be a, a place where people who have an interest, they're in a program where they need to do some innovative work, would be able to, you know, unleash their curiosity on this. Absolutely. It'd be in our interests, in in the interests of the people who we who are our interests. You see what I mean? Of course, we do everything we can to help. There, we have another ethos. We there is no ownership to this. Absolutely no ownership. In in strong contrast to patentable medicine, which where you have your ownership of it, you know, exclusive ownership for twenty years or whatever. There is no ownership. This is a traditional treatment. This is unpatentable unless you modify it. If you modify it, you'll make it more expensive. If you modify it, you'll probably make it more technical as well which means it will be less appropriate. So we're we're doing it in its most basic form. And on that basis, we know nobody is going to be able to make a fortune out of this. You guys sound like open source software. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we, our, we have a deal with anybody we work with. Our deal is very simple. We'll share everything we've got if you share it with us. Simple as open that. Open source software. There yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah, it, that is our basic core philosophy. So we, our core philosophy is everything is open, and our second philosophy is we're not trying to we're not trying to force anything on anybody. What we're trying to do is indigenize it. We want to see this. We want to see this East Asian therapy transplanted and grow on its own terms in an African community. But it could equally well be the, the countries with the big TB problems: Indonesia, India. Former Soviet Union countries have appalling rates of drug resistant TB. So it, it goes, it's all over the world. We called it Mox Africa because it seemed like a good idea at the time. We've been criticized for why do you call it Mox Africa when you're working in North Korea? Yeah, good point. Yeah, but Mox North Korea, nah, it doesn't work. You know, what we've tried coming up with a, with a better generic name and we've, we're sticking with, we've got a kind of a brand called Mox Africa. People have heard of it, so we've got to stick with it. But that doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't do it. We've tried India. We've tried three attempts to get to get on the ground in India. We've, we, each time we thought we've, we've cracked it, and we've never actually got it properly started in India. But we should, we should have done by now. You know, there's so many things. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, all these countries have got lots and lots of TB, and any country which is poorly resourced has got more drug-resistant TB than they know because they can't diagnose it. So there's plenty of opportunity here for research and for helping people. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. You mentioned that you wanted to come back to how people can help and support what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) Well, tomorrow I'm getting on a plane. We're going to, I'm going with a, a guy from Portugal. We're going to Angola and we're trying to set up two projects there. One with uh, with kids, this is a new one for us, but childhood TB is is nasty, really nasty. So this is our first attempt at working with kids. I'm slightly nervous of it, but I'm also very excited about it. And we're also going to work with the TB sanatoria there. That Angola, despite it being the fastest growing economy in, in Africa, has got an appalling TB problem. So uh, so it's going to be very interesting how we're going to get on there. So we're, we're certainly in the early stages the idea is we've got to do some, we've got to support it as much as we can. I was in Uganda last July with a Japanese TV crew, would you believe it? They, they Japanese NHK, National Japanese TV, picked our work up and they they flew me to into 
Uganda and we did some filming there. And while we were there, we met some quite big cheeses in the, in the, it, so I, I said, we went in low level. We now we all of a sudden we've surfaced. They've got a, they've got a paper published. It's got their names on it as well as ours. So basically they've, they, you know, they're prepared to, to talk about it a bit with their, with the, with the, the senior people within the, the ministry of health in, in, in Uganda. And it gives some Uganda some credibility as well. So basically pretty much by the time I'd left, um, we'd got a self-selected team of research of academics at Macquarie University, which is the best university, arguably the best university in East Africa, certainly by far the best university in, in Uganda, a really good team of researchers ready to go, but, and this time to, to test the North Korean data. So we go away. We've got to try and keep them on the boil because they get distracted by so many different things. There are so many challenges that they have on a day-to-day basis. The thing that really gets them interested is if basically we've got some funding, guys, we're ready to go. And all of a sudden, okay, let's get, let's jump on a plane. Let's have a look at it, you know, and then you've got the the research without funding in place. It's kind of like that it's down the priority. So we've been desperately trying to get funding. We've, we had a big funding bid in with a, a big funder in Japan. It looks like it's failed. We've got a second one lining up behind it. But we're talking about much, much more money for this second, the one to test the North Koreans, much, much more money. The North Korean research was self-funded by the North Koreans themselves. We didn't, we literally put nothing into it. You're not allowed to put money into North Korea. So we couldn't even if we wanted to. So North Korea is from a certain way, from our point of view, is is ideal because of that. But in, in Africa, you've got to- You don't you know, bring money to it. You just bring your resources and, and knowledge. So we need we need more money. Do you need- you know, hands. Do you need people to come and help out? No, people. This is the thing. We get not infrequently. We get people phoning up, saying, oh, "Not phoning up, but emailing." You know, and saying, "Wow, I, I love, I love you, the work you're doing. Can I help? You know, I'm, I've, I've been waiting for this. I want to come. I want to come and do something. You know, which is fantastic. And my general response to that is, if you love what we're doing, you've got the message already. Do it. But we can't give you the way to do it. You're going to have to find your own way. So, but you've, you, you've, you've expressed it now. You can't go back on that. You know, you've got to look in your, I have a mirror at the bottom of my stairs here. When I first, when this idea first surfaced, if surf, I, I'll tell you the truth. When this idea first surfaced, the question, that original question, could TV help? Could it help with TV? I'd been drinking that night. I was with some fellow acupuncturists. We were, <laughs> we were drinking. We, it was a good night. And this idea surfaced. The following morning, I woke up with a terrible hangover, but I could remember everything about the night before. And I had a little conversation with myself, and I thought, oh, shit. Oh, I hope that won't be okay saying that. But with, <laughs> with, with you know, what are we going to do with this? Right. Um, now I'm in it, trouble. Now yeah, I've got a vision. Exactly. Now I've got a sense. Exactly. Now I've got something that's really landed for me. This is possible. Oh shit! Now I got to go and, do and, it. And at the bottom of our stairs, we have a mirror, and and I kind of had this conversation with myself. I've got to come down the stairs every morning in my house. I got to look at myself in the mirror. I've got to, got to have a look at this. I've got to do it seriously. Now I think anybody who contacts us or anybody who's going. Wow, I'd like to get involved in this. You've you've got your own mirror somewhere. You've got to do it your own way. We can't help that. We can share anything we've got, but we can't. We don't need people to help on the ground. 
If you wanted to help us by basically doing some creative fundraising, however you may do it, then that go please, please, please do it. All we would ask is we we favor creative fundraising that does not leave a nasty carbon footprint. So we're not really in favor of people going and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Because frankly, if everybody does that, there's not going to be much snow left on it in another decade. So have a think about it, but be creative. And if you can do it, however you do it, and you want to send us some money, fine. Website, the website, www.moxafrica.org, there's a, there's a way to, to supply money. We'll happily do our best to help out with that because obviously we, we, you know, we need this money. Right now, we've never needed money more. We've been really, really broke at different times. But, and we're not broke now, but the funding that we've, we'll be back in North Korea later on the, this summer. So Angola, North Korea will probably take all our money we've got. And then we've got nothing for Uganda. So what I'm really hearing here is there's two ways that people can help. They can, they can send you some money creatively funded, send you some money that would be useful. The other thing they can do is see a place where they can take this open source technology that you're working on and get to work on it and share the information. Those are, those are really the two ways to help move the needle forward on this. So the, the third way is, I'm assuming there are a lot of people living to this, listening to this are, are practicing acupuncturists. So we have patients. Within that group of patients, there's a, a, a massive range of people. And there's a good chance that someone in there might be interested, might be, uh, who knows, a researcher themselves, a philanthropist, a celebrity. Celebrity is a big thing these days, isn't it? Celebrity endorsement. You know, if we had the right person saying, I want to get involved in this, you know, you get such free publicity off of off something like that. Um, so if somebody, you know, basically spread the world, word, I guess, is what I'm saying. If, if people are prepared to talk about this with their patients, um, then that's another way they could help us. I'm really keen on the innovation that you're bringing here. And I love this sense of open source where you're creating a place where people can learn about this, where they can contribute what, what they're finding out about it. It's decentralized. If you're interested, you can jump in and help. If you want to find out about it, you can get some information. It's, uh, that's just fantastic. Yeah, Dr. Hara, right. I keep coming back to our friend, Dr. Hara. Um, yes. He, he, de he described Moxa as being, bear in mind this was in the 1930s, and this is it's, it's, a, it's an archaic word now, but he said Moxa is a proletarian medicine. If you modernize that word, you'd say it's a, it's a people's medicine. Yeah, it's the people's medicine, people's um, medicine. Or, or folk medicine, as you use the word folk medicine, well, folk medicine is people, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's your Absolutely. average Joe. And and That's as right. medicine, and you know, and actually, you know, I've been focusing on 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 African communities or Indian or whatever, but but all of us face the same problem. Medicine is becoming increasingly unaffordable, and medicine itself, like much of the stuff in our world, is unsustainable because because it's demanding so much of it. And, and you, you know, unfortunately, I think the 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 industry, the farm industry in the U.S. is driving this more than anywhere else. The prices that are being expected for the to, to to meet to, to satisfy the demands of of shareholders are so high that more and more of us are going to struggle 
to get any sort of medical care of unless we are extremely rich. So we all face this as a problem. I suspect a lot of us came into the field of acupuncture because we wanted to be a force. We wanted to be a voice. We wanted to, you know, put some energy into turning that around the other way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So we're a good company. Merlin, I, man, I could go on with you and, and we may have to come back, you know, after your trip to Angola and, and get some more about this, but thank you so much for your time today. This no, has it's, been, been, it's been, it's been a ball. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope I haven't said anything that's too controversial to upset anybody, but we have some questions that we need to face, I think, as 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 a profession about, you know, what direction we need to really take. And, and if we want to take moral high ground in any way, we have to really face some of these questions. What can we do for those who most need the best possible therapeutic care? Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.